morning again. I hope you got this card on the way in. I hope you grabbed one. Uh, the idea there is that whether you're already in a group and want to tell us that you're going to continue with that same group, or whether you want to join a group for the first time, or whether you're considering possibly switching groups and you want to maybe try one out, our hope is that everybody would use this card or the online version of this card that we sent out on Thursday to declare your intentions and help us get everybody placed where they need to be in life groups and growth groups this fall. As a reminder, our life groups are 6 to 16 people. Our growth groups are 2 to 5 people, same gender. Those are the smallest two of our so-called discipleship vehicles by which we help you grow in the faith. So if you go ahead and sign up today, either using this card or the online form that came out in Thursday's highlights, that will help us immensely in placement for this fall. Those life groups will launch September 10th that week. Glad you're here. Let's pray. Lord, you're big and you love us, and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and the thoughts that we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. Spring 2011, <clears throat> she was only 17. Loved Jesus, great student, everybody respected her. Multiple Division I scholarship offers for soccer. Uh, Sarah, my wife Sarah, was mentoring her. We were her youth leaders, so her parents called Sarah uh, when their daughter collapsed at track practice and was rushed to the hospital. And that call began a 48-hour period in which Sarah and I cried alongside a family at the hospital as we helplessly watched a teenager, a daughter, a perfectly healthy elite athlete, die on a hospital table. Your life is never quite the same after that. <clears throat> As you can imagine, our youth group was never the same. Experiencing the sudden death of a young, healthy friend has a way of shattering your assumptions. That, well, I'll figure out this Jesus thing when I'm older. Or the idea that there are more important things to prioritize at this stage in my life, or just the assumption, I've got time. There's a sense of urgency that death brings. Because death reminds us that none of us know how much time we have. There's a parable Jesus told that confirms the appropriateness of such a sense of urgency. Would you turn with me to Luke chapter 13? If you're looking at the Bible in the chair back in front of you, it's page 925. Uh, feel free to pull it up on your phone alternatively. Luke 13, let me set the stage as you're turning there. Jesus is being Jesus. He has been teaching, healing, delivering parables. We've seen several of these parables already this summer. They're stories that use points of comparison. He's giving these parables in a context, though, in which his people, the people of Israel, are under foreign oppression. The Roman Empire has had their thumb on the region, and at times it's been nasty over the years to the point where a significant proportion of Jesus' fellow Jews are sick of it, and they're looking for any sign that it might be time for the revolution to begin. The problem is the... The nationalists, they can't quite put their finger on Jesus. Like, can we count on him in our quest to end this Roman injustice, to overthrow Roman rule, to gain our independence? Or is Jesus going to turn out 
to be one of these who just stays on the sidelines. So at the very beginning of Luke 13, some of the people in the crowd, and we don't know their motives in asking this, but they say, hey, Jesus, uh, take a look at verse 1. Jesus, did you hear about the people from up in your neck of the woods in Galilee? The ones that Pilate, the Roman governor, killed and mixed their blood with the sacrifices? And everybody waits with anticipation to see how Jesus is going to respond. How's he going to comment on this? An expected response would have been, that wicked Pilate should never have been made governor over us. God will make him pay. Or, Jesus could have said, it's time for all who love our dear nation to rise up and revolt against our oppressors. At very least, the crowd might have expected from Jesus, my sympathies go out to the families of the deceased, and I'm praying for the day in which all such injustice at the hands of the Romans will be in the past. Any of those would have been welcome. Received as appropriate. But Jesus is operating on a totally different plane from these folks. And so he addresses, in response, the issue that he thinks is the most important to address in this moment. Look what he says. He says, do you think that these Galileans, the ones who died, were more sinful than all the other Galileans because they suffered these things? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you all will perish as well. We can imagine some of the disciples being like, Jesus, will you read the room? But not only does Jesus not tone it down, he takes it further. He immediately launches into a similar story that apparently had been in the news recently, and he doubles down on this approach. He says, oh, if we're going to talk about suffering and death, do you hear about that tower in Siloam that fell and killed 18 people? Come on, do you think those people died because they were the worst 18 people in Jerusalem? Of course not. But repent, or you all die too. This is how Jesus is going to speak to legitimate victims of oppression, suffering under tyranny. Like Jesus, what you think is most important to say to these people in light of some of their fellow Israelites dying because of a political execution and a construction disaster is, I guess it's pretty urgent that you guys repent. That is what Jesus thinks is most important to say. When these nationalists bring to him concerns about a legitimately evil ruler, Kenneth Bailey summarizes Jesus' response that we just saw like this. Jesus is effectively saying, you want me to condemn evil in Pilate. I'm not talking to Pilate. He's not here. I'm talking to you. Evil forces are at work in your movement that will destroy you, Pilate or no Pilate. You must repent or all of you will be destroyed by those forces. Now, wow, let's pull back for a second, come up for air, okay? Listen, I live in the same world that you live in. Repent or die? Seriously, preacher, this is 2023, right? You know how many contemporary people have been scarred by religious fanaticism? Educated people don't talk this way anymore. This is the sort of alienating language that keeps people from church. In fact, just a few weeks ago, there was a thoughtful question texted in right along these lines, right? 
It was the week when I preached the parable of the sheep and the goats, and there were several complicated issues in that parable, but one particular person texted in something that I'm sure others here have felt too. It was along the lines of being nervous about bringing unbelieving or unchurched people to church, because how are non-Christians supposed to take a message that involves some people being sent to eternal punishment? That's an important question, and I feel it. I've had unchurched friends tell me they're planning to come to church on a certain Sunday, and then I look ahead at what the preaching calendar says for that Sunday, and sometimes I want to say, can you pick a different week? (laughs) But then I snap out of it and realize, no, all of God's word is good. All of God's word is useful, and all of God's word will do what he wants it to do, right? But the question was thoughtful enough. The question texted him was thoughtful enough that I thought it, it warranted an extended response. So you understand my heart as we continue in this parable series for a few more weeks. Three things, real quick, that I want to point out. One, Jesus spoke most of the parables that we've seen this summer, and most of those that we will see, to mixed crowds of his followers and non-followers. In other words, if we're thinking that these parables have seemed like hard-to-swallow topics best suited for advanced Christians, Jesus seemed to think that these stories are what the unconvinced needed to hear. And as we noted in the first week of the series, Jesus explicitly tells us what the parables are meant to do. They're meant to open some people's eyes, and they're going to inevitably harden some others against him, right? So as we invite our friends and our loved ones to come to us, come to church with us, or to read these parables with us, or to send them sermons to listen to, we aren't surprised when these parables do exactly what Jesus said they were going to do. We expect it, right? Second, when we feel uncomfortable about a sermon, as I have many times where I've sat when you're sitting in this church or that church, there's an important question to ask ourselves, namely, am I uncomfortable with this preacher's interpretation of Scripture or am I uncomfortable with the Scripture? Like when a preacher points out how Jesus says in one place after another after another that some are going to get sent to a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, eternal fire, I don't know about you, I find myself slithering down in my seat a little bit, like especially if I'm sitting next to someone who isn't on board with that idea. But then I ask myself, well, what do I actually want this preacher to do? Some churches just skip all those parts of the Bible, right, and keep recycling the same handful of scripture texts that will send everybody home happy, right? But now if we do that, what do we just do? Now we've crafted a religion that just props up what we already like. That never brings us into an encounter with God whose far, ways are far above our own. Instead, it just builds a comfortable cocoon around our own desires and preferences. So believers in Jesus and those who don't believe in Jesus, does anybody really find that worth getting up on Sunday mornings for? Just a pat on the back to keep being you. Third and finally, there's a mindset among my generation and younger that the wisest approach with our unbelieving friends and neighbors is like a funnel. Like you picture how a funnel starts wide and comes down skinny. Like early on, let's just give them the easy stuff so that they'll like Jesus. And then over time, if they show some interest in Christianity, then we gradually reveal the hard stuff about the faith, only when they're ready to hear it. So we start out with, hey, this is stuff you like, and then only later move on to, hey, okay, so hear me out, but there's also some stuff you might not like. Besides the pragmatic problem with that approach, namely, that our friends tend to feel bait and switched by us when they realize after years of relationship with us that we believe some things that they consider to be hateful, 
there's an even bigger problem with that funnel approach, namely that Jesus seems to flip the funnel. He's constantly talking to the skeptical crowds, saying, hey, the road is narrow. Few will find the gate that lets you into the kingdom. You're going to have to lay down everything. And then when people take that plunge and go all in for following him, then do we find these reservoirs of grace and endless pools of mercy for when we fail. So as appealing as it is to me, I'm talking about for myself, in some moments to hide the repent or perish type of scriptures until people have had a few years of experience with Christianity under their belts. When I start thinking that's such a good, that would be such a good idea, I, I just keep wondering why Jesus seems to do the opposite. You know, I, think, I think clarity is kindness. Right? Our unchurched friends deserve to know what Jesus really teaches, not just the parts that make us feel the warm fuzzies, right? And so listen, every Sunday, we've got some people here who haven't yet put their faith in Jesus, right? I'm sure this week is no different. We're so glad you're here. You're in exactly the right place. As you do your exploring, figuring out what it is you believe, you want to evaluate the real thing, namely, if Christianity is, real Christianity is intense, you don't want me to get up here and sugarcoat it. You want to know what the real deal is. You can figure out if you could believe in this or not. You didn't get up this morning and come to church when you could have been doing so many other good things, all for us to pretend that it's not so intense, it's not so serious, only to spring it on you two years down the road. Hey, plot twist, we actually don't think we're all headed to heaven automatically. We actually think there is a place called hell. Sorry we didn't tell you that at the beginning, just thought you couldn't really handle it yet. Think about it this way. If we were all poor beggars, and a few of us found a trove of bread, wouldn't you think of us as complete jerks as if we kept that news to ourselves, right? Imagine you limped your starving sack of bones into one of our meetings where you heard us casually mention the bread trove we all found when we had never told you about it ourselves, right? In other words, you might think that we Christians are out of our minds to believe this stuff that we're going to look at today, right? And that might be fair based on how many, so many Christians have acted, right? But if you know you have a friend maybe the friend who brought you here this morning or who sent you this sermon video, who believes in a heaven and a hell, and they believe that there's no way to heaven apart from Jesus, don't you feel more loved by that friend at least attempting to tell you about his or her belief than you would if you found out he or she had that belief but kept it to himself or herself? That's a long aside. Thanks for bearing with me. What I'm trying to articulate is that I, I get it, this repent or perish message, message in the mouth of Jesus feels so cringy in our day. I really do get that, right? But I'm convinced it would be an ultimate act of hatred if we avoided it. For what? Like, so you wouldn't think that we were weird? And I guess I'm calling us to ask ourselves, is there any possibility that this feels cringy to us, not because Jesus had it upside down, but because our broken world is upside down, right? And the passages like this are actually Jesus giving it the framework to see it all right side up. We haven't even gotten to our parable yet. It's just the setup for the parable. Um, but as we've read Jesus saying, hey, I know you all want me to be concerned about Pilate, but I'm actually concerned for you. There are already so many direct applications to our day, right at the outset, right when we're about to jump into this parable, right? Like, think about this. Most of us have been baited. Haven't you been baited? By somebody who comes to you and says, hey, did you hear about the indoctrination going on in the public schools now? Did you hear about the violence in downtown Chicago this weekend? Did you hear what that illegal immigrant did in Texas last week? 
Did you hear about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices? Or if your conversation partners are on the other side, it's, hey, did you hear it's in Florida's new social studies curriculum? Did you hear what DeSantis did with that bus full of displaced people? Did you hear what they were chanting at the Trump rally yesterday? Whichever side your conversation partner is coming from, you know the response they're looking for, right? Something like, it's crazy what America is becoming. Or we need to take this country back. Or basically, I can't believe how evil the people on the other side are. Meanwhile, we have Jesus in such a conversation. That's all they want him to say. Can't believe how evil that pilot is. Does he take the bait? No. Now, he does not, does not downplay the real evil that has been brought to his attention. Doesn't downplay it. He doesn't try to excuse it away or minimize it. He doesn't tell the crowd, forget about politics and focus on spiritual matters. No. He doesn't do any of those things. Jesus talks all the time about justice. He isn't shy about getting involved in politics. At the same time, he doesn't give the crowds the red meat they're looking for. Why? Because he has compassion for these people he's talking to. And he knows that there's sin within them that, if not addressed, will eventually kill them. And as such, he knows that there's something even more dangerous than Pilate is to these people he loves. And his love for them moves him to plead with them to repent and to be urgent about doing so. That urgency about the need to repent in light of the fact that any of us could be taken at any time, that's the backdrop for the parable we're about to read. Uh, here it is, Luke 13, 6 to 9. We see in this short parable two lessons, uh, but let's read it first. Jesus told this parable. A man had a fig tree that was planted in his vineyard. He came looking for fruit on it and found none. He told the vineyard worker, listen, for three years I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it even waste the soil? But he replied to him, sir, leave it this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. Perhaps it'll produce fruit next year. But if not, you can cut it down. See in this short parable, two lessons. One, that God would be totally right to cut us down. And two, that God in his mercy hasn't cut us down yet. Crazy merciful because he hasn't cut us down yet. First, that God in his justice would be totally justified in cutting us down. Let's look again at verses 6 and 7. He told this parable, a man had a fig tree that was planted in his vineyard. He came looking for fruit on it and found none. He told the vineyard worker, listen, for three years I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it even waste the soil? Think about this from the tree's perspective. Uh, Humor me for a second, right? Would it be unreasonable for the tree to think, man, I've been comfortable here for three years and nobody's tried to cut me down yet. I must be making my owner happy. He must be intending to bless me. That's what some of Israel's leaders were thinking at the time of Jesus, but they've disastrously misread the situation, right? Here's the owner representing God and his justice. Hey, I've been waiting three years. Cut this tree down. And I guess to get right to it, I wonder if that's someone here this morning. Before you walked in here today, your thinking was, hey, my life's been relatively easy. I haven't experienced great tragedies. God must be approving of my life on some level. He's blessing me, isn't he? 
if we're approaching life as though today's situation is an accurate predictor of tomorrow's situation, or as though God's blessing implies God's favor, we could be just as wrong as Israel's leaders represented by this tree. It's quite possible that the reason that you're still alive and still healthy this morning is not because God approves of your life, but because he's graciously been giving you just a little more time to repent and give your life to him before he cuts you down. Now, I keep using that term repent as though we all know what that means, but it's not a word many of us use in everyday conversation anymore, even though there aren't many concepts more foundational to our eternal destiny. So what's it mean to repent? Okay, here's what it is. Uh, Jesus calls for repentance in verse 3, verse 5 here, this whole passage. So to repent means I've been walking this way. If I throw up, uh, hey, sorry, God, and I keep walking this way, that's not repentance. What repentance is is this. Hey, God, I've been walking this way, but now I'm going to turn around, and I'm going to walk back towards you. I'm going a new way now. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm going this way now. That's where repentance is. It's a change of mind and a change of heart. It's a turning. And whether we perish or not, according to this parable, comes down to whether we made that turn. That's it. There aren't exceptions made here for extenuating circumstances or for oppressed classes of people, right? Look at Jesus. He's speaking to victims of oppression. This is the backdrop of the parable. They just brought up oppression and violence that was committed against them. Yet he says to them, hey, unless you repent, you also will perish. Now, repentance is the central idea of this whole passage, and it couldn't be more critical that we grasp what it's about. So I'm going to bring a few volunteers up here right now for a demonstration. I'll confess I don't know 100% how this is going to go. You can jump in, Janelle. Okay, you guys come on up here too. Thanks. Come on up. Yep. Stand right here for Janelle. Yep. Uh, Both of you guys. Yeah, thanks. Appreciate it. Okay, I'm going to make up names for these three, okay? So I'm not going to use the real names. There will be no confusion. None of these stories I'm about to tell about any of these three are their real stories. Everybody good on that? Okay, good. So um, that's, uh, but I'm going to help, uh, I'm going to ask you all to help me sort these three based on what you hear of their stories, okay? Ready? So, so we're going we're gonna to imagine that God is up there, okay? And so uh, we're trying to figure out who's close to God, who's far from God based on their stories, right? So as we share their stories, I want you to think about where you would place each of these three in the center aisle. Like really close to God would be like, right, that's, that person seems really close to God. All the way in the back is like that person could not be farther from God, okay? Ready? So, um, so, okay, so here, let's go here first. We're going to call him Alex. So everybody say, hi, Alex. Hi. It's not his real name. Okay, Alex has it all together on the outside, okay? He's respected in the community. He's a successful business owner. And what nobody knows, though, is that he berates his employees, changes their pay, and makes unreasonable demands of them. Okay? That's Alex. Here's Betsy. Everybody say, hi, Betsy. You know, Betsy, she's a free spirit. Okay? She's got a reputation around school for being kind of a druggie, kind of floating through life aimlessly without much purpose, kind of trying to enjoy the moment without getting too hung up thinking about serious issues. It's Betsy. And then third, here's Charles. Hi, Charles. He's not very religious per se, but he's a very moral person. Lives by the golden rule. He's humble, open-minded toward others. He's generous with his time and money. He's involved in working for social causes while seeking to better himself personally. Okay. 
Alex, Betsy, Charles. Okay, so let's think about it, okay? We're going to all walk back here, all three of you guys. Come on back with me. You're going to think about where you guys would place these folks, okay? Who's closest to God? Who's furthest from God? And the way that we're going to do this is you all are going to clap, and then you're going to stop clapping when you think I should stop, okay? I will stop when the clapping stops, okay? So Alex, you come first. Everybody remember Alex's story, business owner, kind of mistreats his employees, looks good on the outside. Let's walk here, Alex. And, uh, whoa, whoa, nobody's clapping, actually. We can't walk yet. Okay, how, we should keep moving? Okay. People want us to keep moving? Let's go slow. Let's go slow. It's starting to die down. Okay, we'll stop right there. Alex, you're here, okay, and turn this way. Thank you, Alex. Okay, Betsy's next. Okay, remember Betsy's our free spirit, okay? We're going to move when they start clapping, Betsy. How close is she to God? Okay. We're still moving. We're still moving. We think you're closer, okay? We're going to keep going. We're going to keep going. We think you're closer than Alex. Sorry, Alex. Okay? Okay, Betsy's right here, okay? If you would turn facing back here, too, both of you, okay? Last one, Charles. Charles, remember, he's this really great dude, okay? Really moral. Maybe he doesn't have a lot of religious going on, but he's just like a really, really good guy, okay? So let's start clapping, okay? See how far we want to go, Charles. Hey, Alex, good to see you. Betsy, good to see you. Oh, pretty close to God. Okay. okay, died down there. Okay, let's face back here again. Okay, so we've got everybody placed. We've got Alex, Betsy, Charles, happened to go in the order. Um, and so thanks for helping me with this. It's interesting to consider what makes somebody closer to God or further from God, right? Biblically speaking, though, and I know that many of you know this and humored me by playing along with that, um, but what is most true about these three? Whether they seem to be as far away as Alex seems to be, or whether they seem to be as close as Charles here seems to be, uh, what's true about all of them in terms of how far each of them is from God? Infinitely, right? Infinitely far from God. If they don't belong to Christ, they haven't trusted in Jesus. Um, there's a gaping chasm between them and God and Christ, right, um, that's insurmountable. Every one of us, which is why in our passage today, Jesus emphasized you will all perish, right? Every one of us is laughably far from being able to reach out and grab hold of God. None of these folks could reach out and grab hold of God, right? Um, volunteers, thank you guys. You can go back to your seats. Yes, thanks. Well done. Oops. But stay alert, because I'm going to call you back up one more time before the end. Um, but thank you for helping us out. Um, I want to shift gears right now, though, and think about this vineyard owner. <clears throat> think about this vineyard owner. We see in verse 6 that he didn't, it's not just that he happened to notice that there was a fruitless tree. He went looking for it. Right? He came looking for fruit. And that's how our God is. He knows every tree he owns, and he expects all of his vineyard to be productive. So he actively comes looking, seeking fruit, right? Now, from the owner's perspective, doesn't it make total sense to cut down this tree? Like, I mean, for several reasons. One, he's given it three years. Maybe trees take a little while to get going. Maybe there's a fluke year here, there. But at this point, he's given it more than a reasonable length of time to do what it's planted to do, right? Secondly, it's clearly the most efficient course of action to cut it down and plant something else. Sunk cost fallacy, looking for my, uh, for my business school folks, uh, to keep putting time and energy into a bad investment is the worst thing you can do, right? It, it'll, 
save the owner time, trouble, and hassle. Just cut it down. Be done with it. And third, it's wasting space that could better be used, right? you see that at the end of verse 7 here? His reasoning for wanting to cut it down is why should it use up the ground? In other words, this is taking nutrients from other trees in the vineyard. The rest of the vineyard is actually suffering because of this one. If this was cut down, something else could be planted here immediately that would bear fruit. In summary, any gardener would know the right answer immediately, right? Three years is more than enough time. Cut it down. It's really important that we understand this especially if you're feeling conviction this morning, as I did some years ago, that you're the barren tree in this story. You're not bearing any fruit. I want to address you, actually, for the next few minutes. Right? Specifically, I'm talking now for the next few minutes to the person here this morning who knows in their heart, that's me, I'm not bearing fruit. I want to plead with you to hear in this parable that God cutting you down, so to speak, this morning would be every bit as justified as that vineyard owner cutting down that tree. It's a no-brainer. Just like that tree, you've been given enough time. You haven't been living under a rock. This isn't your first time hearing about Jesus. You probably have a Christian friend or family member. Probably have a Bible somewhere in your house, right? And just like the tree, the most efficient thing would be to cut you down and plant something else. There's a cost to keeping you alive. God finds food for you and puts it on your table. Every second, he decides to give you another breath and another. He's constantly holding together the delicate ecosystem of your body because if he ever took a day off from holding you together, those organs in your body would begin to shut down one by one. He has graciously given you day after day after day of life for what? Who keeps a car in the garage that's never going to drive? Who keeps a computer that doesn't turn on? Why should God keep around a tree that doesn't bear fruit even though he created it to bear fruit? Just like the tree... You're wasting space that could better be used. And just like the tree, you're hurting the rest of the vineyard. Because every day that goes by when these younger folks in the church see you living as if God doesn't matter to your life at all, but you keep on living a seemingly blessed life, they start to think, oh, I can get the best of both worlds by living however I want and just kind of giving God the bare minimum required to get, me off, get him off my back. And so your presence in the vineyard isn't just a waste, though it is a waste. It's actively harming the other trees that God cares about. In summary, the choice is clear. Just like any gardener would know the right answer immediately, is a sober realization at one point in my life when I understood that actually any casual observer of my life would know that the right answer immediately, what makes the most sense is for God to cut me down. Good thing the parable isn't over, huh? God in his mercy hasn't cut us down yet. Hasn't cut us down yet. Let's read the end of it again. It says, but he replied to him, sir, leave it this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. Perhaps it'll produce fruit next year. But if not, you can cut it down. So the vineyard worker speaks up to the vineyard owner in verse 8, pleading for him to show mercy for one more year. This is going to take a lot of care on the vineyard worker's part, right? And catch this, apparently, fig trees shouldn't have needed to be dug around. They didn't need fertilizer, According to the experts, this worker is wanting to go above and beyond. And I wonder how many of us realize that that above and beyond is what God has done for us, even up to this very morning. Like, do you realize how much God put into this one more effort to grab hold of our hearts this morning? Think about what he did along the way. He sent his son Jesus to die for our sins. He then breathed through the words of the biblical authors to write about it. He then empowered translators to translate it into a language you and I could understand. 
He then placed us in a place where we'd have access to published versions of his words. Then he gifted teachers to be able to explain these scriptures and directed our journey. So we'd end up here this morning in a room with people who are able to explain clearly what God has to say to us. And he probably moved some aunt or parent or spouse or friend of yours to pray for your soul while you're here this very morning. See how he's been digging and laying down fertilizer to try to give you one more shot? What did you and I do to deserve such gracious treatment? What did the tree do to deserve such treatment? There's absolutely nothing any of us have done that could commend us to God as if, hey, let me explain to you, God, why I'm a deserving candidate, worthy to receive extra grace, extra care, extra fertilizer, so to speak, from you. Think about it for a second. Every other creature that God ever made lives its life to praise him. Every spider that's ever spun a web has done so to live out the purpose which its creator gave, gave it to live out. No rose has unfolded except to live out the purpose for which its creator created it. Even inanimate objects, every wave that has ever broken on the shore has obeyed the limits God has set for it and hasn't dared cross one inch past where God has given it permission to go. But you and me, we're fig trees planted by our owner specifically to produce fruit for him, yet we have the audacity to bear him no fruit. Zero of the sort of fruit that goes hand in hand with repentance, some of us. When we realize what we're deserving of, doesn't it make God's great mercy pop out in contrast? Like bright colors on a dark canvas. Can't we see what a wonder it is that God has allowed any of us to make it here this morning? But there's no guarantee of tomorrow, right? By leaving the parable without a conclusion, Jesus doesn't even reveal whether the extra year was granted. But even if we were to assume it was granted, how do any of us know where we presently fall on the timeline in the parable, right? This could be your wake-up call this morning at the end of year three. But this could be the last day of my year four, right? Maybe God has already done all the digging and fertilizing he's going to do in my life. That was last year, and now the axe is at the root of the tree. There's no reason Jesus couldn't come back right now as I'm speaking, if he waits a little longer, he could take you and I home tomorrow, right? Are we ready to face him? Are we bearing fruit? And all this patience he's shown us, all this mercy, all this waiting another year for us and another year for us is all to give us time to do this. It's our big idea for today. Repent before it's too late. Repent before it's too late. None of us know when it's going to be too late. And that's the point. 17-year-old Sarah Landauer, who I showed you at the beginning, she didn't know it was her day. My 20-year-old friend, Tim St. John, last summer, he didn't know it was his day. Praise God that both of them had turned to Jesus. Repent before it's too late. Let's call our volunteers back up one more time. If you guys would just return to the spot where we left you, that would be great. Thanks. We said that whether we're rule breakers or rule followers... All of us are so incredibly far from God, right? Unless, right? It's a beautiful word Jesus says in this passage, in this parable, unless. One turn makes a difference. Unless you repent, right? Would you turn toward the front? Just right where you are. Each of you turn toward the front, right? That's all it is. It's just right where you are. No matter how far you feel from God this morning, it's just a turn, 180 degrees. From the way you've been walking, and a turn toward God to start heading back his direction 
in faith. Jesus says, unless you repent, we don't have to perish. That's what that means. Unless you repent. So there's another way. We don't have to perish. Wherever we are, however far from God we find ourselves, all we have to do is just turn. Instead of our backs facing him, now we've turned and we're moving toward him. That's repentance. And that turn toward Jesus is the one and only thing that can be done to restore relationship with him. Thanks, guys. You can sit back down one more time. You're officially fully done now. We'll close with this story that uh, Francis Chan tells about his friend Stan Gerlach. Uh, some of you have heard it. Stan was apparently a successful businessman in California. He was asked to give the eulogy at a friend's funeral. And at the end, he decided to share the gospel. At the end of his gospel presentation at this funeral for his friend, he told the mourners who were present, hey, you never know when God's going to take your life. At that moment, there's nothing you can do about it. Are you ready? And then Stan sat down, fell over, and died right there at the funeral. His wife and sons tried to resuscitate him. There's nothing they could do. He was gone. How crazy is that, right? And as Francis Chan tells this story about his friend, he points out, one minute, Stan is at a memorial service saying to a crowd, this is who Jesus is. And then the next minute, he's before God hearing Jesus say, this is who Stan Gerlach is. We do well, you and I do, even now, to think carefully and soberly and honestly about that moment, that moment that none of us know the timing of, but that moment in which each of us is going to meet God face to face. If you haven't yet made that turn from your sin and to Jesus, this is not me emotionally manipulating you by saying, hey, today's the day because you might not have tomorrow. That is a literal truth. You might not have tomorrow. Jesus went to the greatest lengths to fold you into his family, going so far as to die in your place so you could be made right with God. He just says, turn from your sin toward me in faith, and you're in. Today could be that day that for the rest of your life, you tell your story as before August 13th, 2023, and after August 13th, 2023. Because Jesus allowed himself to be cut down, so to speak, in your place, all you have to do his turn. Let's pray. God, I just, I pray in particular for that person this morning who's just sensing that they need to turn, sensing that it's time to turn. That person who's here this morning who realizes that what they deserve, just like what we all deserve, is to be cut down right where we are. Because uh, we haven't borne you fruit. Yet in your great mercy, you sent your son to be cut down for us so that we didn't have to, if we'll just turn, turn to you in faith. And so I pray that you'd give someone the courage this morning to make that turn. I pray that you would uh, block out the lies of the enemy that are creeping in right now as they're thinking about this and reflecting on it uh, as the enemy's trying his best to keep them from turning to you in faith. Uh, we pray that they'd reject those lies and that they'd experience the life, life to the full that's found only in you.